Welcome to the Metro Praise International Cohort, to our chapel this afternoon. Uh, today we'll be discussing the Pentecostal worldview and really reclaiming the distinctives of that worldview, namely um, the gospel, sanctification, spiritual empowerment, and Jesus' second coming. These are things that really marked and set apart uh, the Pentecostal movement in its early stages, but lately, in later years, we have kind of, as, as a movement, we're talking major you know, denominations, major players in the Pentecostal world, have kind of just melded into the larger evangelical uh, movement, the larger church growth movement. And listen, folks, we believe that Pentecostalism now is is really God's answer for reaching the world in these last days. Amen? And so we cannot lose those distinctives. We must reclaim those uh, distinctions. Amen? That because the baptism of the Holy Spirit is about empowerment to preach the gospel and to be Jesus' witnesses to the ends of the earth. So we need to be making much of that and not minimizing it. So let's give it up for our speaker, visionary leader, Joey Rostek, and for Jesus. Right, thank you, Pastor Jared, our cohort advisor and professor who we really love. Okay, open up your Bibles with me to the book of Acts. Let's have these two gentlemen come in a little bit closer over here. That would be good. So one of you can go there, now they'll go there. So we're uh, going into a part two, so that means we've already discussed uh, part one, and in, in, uh, we discussed the history of the Pentecostal movement. If you want to learn more about that, go back to those uh, notes and to that sermon, rather. Let's go to Acts chapter 2, uh, verse 17. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. The next few verses have to do with eschatology. Uh, now let's go to Acts 2.38, running down to the end of the uh, chapter there. We see Peter reply to them after they responded, what must we do to be saved? That He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children, and for all who are afar off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. So the Pentecostal baptism of the Holy Spirit, the Pentecostal movement was birthed by Jesus sending the Holy Spirit 50 days after um, Passover, after the crucifixion, on the Jewish feast day of Pentecost, Pente meaning 50. On that day, the 120 disciples in the upper room were filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak in other tongues. They went out into the streets while the festival was going on. They drew a crowd. As the crowd came, Paul, uh, Peter preached to them from the prophet Joel and told them this is what is happening. This is what had been prophesied, that God would pour out his spirit upon all people, sons and daughters. So there would be no um, ethnic superiority. Yes, it would come to the Jews first, but it would go to the Gentiles. There would be no distinction of male or female, slave or free. 
Paul reiterates this later on in Galatians. And so that's key in that passage. This is a global movement fulfilling Jesus' words that he said at the end of Mark 16 and in Matthew 28 for the great, great Commission to go into all the world and make disciples to preach the gospel. After Peter preaches to them, shows how it's relevant to Scripture and the Old Testament, they want to get saved. They want to experience this as well. At first they think they're drunk. But then they are convicted because they understand this is the initiation into the messianic kingdom. Kingdom of God coming first within, then without to the nations. And so they want it and they say, what must we do to be saved? And Peter says in that last passage we just read, you repent now. You be baptized. Those were things they had already done. You do that in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And here is the key. And now you will receive the gift. The promised Holy Spirit. Jesus said, John the, baptized, uh, John the Baptist baptized with water. I baptize you with the Holy Ghost and fire. Now you will receive that same gift. The same gift they were waiting for in the upper room, praying faithfully to receive. That promise now, P uh, Peter says, is not only for them, it's for their children and for all who are afar off. Can you get any more far off? than Jerusalem in about, you know, uh, 30 A.D. from where we are right now. I mean, that's 2,000 years in the future. Here we are from that day in a whole nother, on a whole nother continent. But are we still included in this? Yes, even those who are as far off as 2,000 years on another continent. For all whom the Lord our God will call. So it's a calling for all, a call for all. The Pentecostal worldview is for all. Now, we talked about last week what distinguished Pentecostals from all the other groups. Now, there's a great book on Pentecostal history all the way up to the 1900s that you can get from a regent professor, and I have the information on that if you want it. So the Pentecostal movement is not a new movement. It continued on through the church ages, but it was dormant at certain times, a minority position at other times. But once the Reformation came, the mission movement came, back to the gospel came in the, in the time of America and the early settlement there with the Methodists, it was only just a short hop, skip, and a jump before people were being boom, shaka, lock it again, just like they were on the day of Pentecost. And from that time, the early 1900s, we have become the largest Protestant movement in the world. Nobody bigger than us other than the Orthodox and the Catholics, but they are not Protestant. So as a biblical evangelical worldview, Pentecostals are the largest, about 700 million adherents around the world. They say roughly about 80% of all mission work, all new converts in these places that we mentioned before, like China, India, and in places like that is Pentecostal, spirit-filled. Africa, spirit-filled. Now, we have our issues, but over the last 100 years, God has done great things. Sadly, we have lost our worldview in the last 20 or so years, as well as everybody else in American Christianity as well. I mean, Baptists have lost their worldview. I mean, they, they have problems in their churches right now. Uh, the, the Methodists are turning towards homosexuality and ordaining uh, homosexuals. There has been an upheaval of worldviews among all Christians in the last 20-some years. And you could say it started maybe 50 years ago in the 60s. But here we are. 
as Pentecostal spirit-filled believers. That means we believe in these four things. We believe in the gospel, we believe in sanctification, we believe in spiritual empowerment, and we believe in Jesus' second coming. Now, this is not my opinion that this is the foundation of Pentecostalism in the last hundred years. This is a fact. You could still go to the largest Pentecostal denomination, the Assemblies of God, and see roughly these four main distinctives. You can go, and they have about seven, 70 million adherents around the world, and they just had their world council. Uh, just uh, last week, I believe. And you could go to Foursquare Gospel, who has about uh, 15, 20 million or less than that around the world, but it's a large movement around the world, a lot larger around the world than it is in America. Uh, same four ideas are there. This is what made us distinctive. So evangelicals, uh, Baptists, etc., over the last 100 years, Billy Graham, may have agreed with us in a, in, in a lot of the fundamental principles of number one and number four, the gospel and Jesus' second coming. But it's that sanctification and spiritual empowerment, those two middle points that really only belong to the Pentecostal. This is what makes us unique. This is what enables us to grow. This is what enables us to change nations, literally changing nations in Africa and in Asia right now. And so once again, when we think about a worldview, it's the lens in which we see the world from and through, how we view the world. And yesterday at church, we talked about major uh, overlap, uh, major general worldviews. Um, the, the major worldviews of the, the Bible are basically the same as they are today. There's people who don't believe in God. They only believe in a material universe. The Bible says, the fool says in their heart, there's no God. Then there's people who believe God is the universe, like pantheists, uh, those who are Buddhists and Hindus. Then there are those like the Muslims and certain other pagan religions that believe God is way off over there and the world's way over here, and that's dualism. But then we learned about panentheism, which is all in God. Pan, the Greek word for all, in, E-N, is the same word we have for in, I-N, and then theism, God. And we see that in Romans, it says, for from him and through him and to him are all things, Paul said. And then also in Acts, when he preached, he quoted their poets and he said, for in him we live and move and have our being. So literally those words, all things in Romans and in him, in, in Acts, we see panentheism. We see that that is the biblical worldview. And what it basically means is all is in God. God is distinct from his energies and essence, like the sun is the essence and the energies are the rays. But the universe, nonetheless, is in God's essence. And he surrounds it and he sustains it. And I gave you those quotes from Jonathan Edwards and Martin Luther and Spinoza and so many others hold to this worldview. But then when you go specific, because all Christians should have that worldview, panentheism, is that then you get specific into now how you look at God's involvement in the world he's sustaining. And this is now where you get to what I believe is the best way to explain his involvement in the world. He's doing it through the Gospels, through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. All things in, in Ephesians, it says, being brought under the subjection to Christ and in unity and all things through him and the church. And then sanctification, that God is no longer just out there somewhere in a temple, but God, or, or on a prophet at certain times, but now God is literally in us, in us. We are now in him in heavenly places, dwelling with him in those spiritual realms, blessed with every spiritual blessing. And that transference from us being in a spiritually dark kingdom to the spiritual kingdom of light transforms our inner nature. We are born again. 
We were born sinners, but now we are born again saints. We were once unrighteous, now we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Just as much as I was a sinner without Jesus is as much as I am righteous and not a sinner in Jesus. Think about that. Just as much as I was a sinner without Jesus and had nothing to do with righteousness is as much as I have to do with righteousness now and nothing to do with sin. You can't have it both ways. If I was fully depraved and fully a sinner without Christ, then that means I am fully righteous and fully holy in Christ. There is no middle ground for the spiritual condition of man. He is either sinful and wicked and utterly detestable to God, or he is blameless, holy, righteous. That is the biblical account. And then spiritual empowerment to actually believe that now the Holy Spirit who is in us and through us and is sustaining the world by his mighty power is actually using us to impact the world, to cast out demons, to lay our hands on the sick, to speak in languages we have not learned for the sake of prophecy and words of wisdom and knowledge, to stop natural causes from continuing on, the weather or so forth, like Moses did and Joshua did, to literally be able to raise the dead, cleanse the lepers. And we believe in the book of Acts that the normative behavior for those in experience, the normative experience for those who are empowered is the first thing they do is speak in other tongues. You go through the whole book of Acts, sometimes they prophesy and speak in tongues. Sometimes they speak in tongues and praise God. Sometimes they do just tongues. So you go through the entire uh, account of the book of Acts and you see the pattern. You see the experiential pattern of the disciples. So we, as a Pentecostal worldview, we say get saved, believe that you're sanctified, and then be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I preached a whole message on that, being born of the Spirit and being baptized in the Spirit. Two separate occasions, but the same work of the Spirit. You can go to heaven being born again of the Spirit. You don't have to speak in tongues and be baptized in the Spirit to go to heaven. The disciples were filled with the Spirit for salvation at the end of John. He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. It either happened or it didn't. It's not a parable. He says he breathed on them and they received it. That goes back to what they had lost in the Garden of Eden. God breathed his breath into them. They were in union with God spiritually. They were partakers of the divine nature, but through their sin, they spiritually died. Now after Christ's resurrection, the fullness of the gospel is brought with the rebirth, and he initiates it by actually breathing on them. That is the mouth-to-mouth resuscitation of our creator. Can I get an amen? The same one, Jesus, because it says all things were created by him and through him, and nothing has been created without being created by him. The same one that breathed into the dust and created us then to be living souls, breathed into us again to be born again, perfect and holy souls. Holy as our heavenly Father, uh, perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. Holy as he is holy, blameless, without blemish, spot, or wrinkle. Can I get an amen? And then the spiritual empowerment now comes through that vessel. That spiritual empowerment enables them to now preach the gospel, be a witness to the world, as the Bible says they would do with the spiritual power. And this, the message, just like with Moses, it comes with signs. These signs follow the preaching. 
And what are we now doing lastly as we're saved, sanctified, and filled with the Holy Ghost? What are we doing? Preparing the way for the Lord's second coming. In the great commissions of Mark and Luke and all of them, and you know, into Acts, Luke wrote Acts, and, and to Matthew, it's all the same. You will now do this until I come back, until the end of this age, and then I judge the world and initiate another age. And so when the Pentecostal preachers went out, that was on their mind. Jesus is coming back. They preached like Paul that his coming was imminent. It could happen at any moment. They were ready ready for the second coming of Jesus. They were now a generation of John the Baptist. There was one John the Baptist preparing the way of the Lord's first coming. Now there is a church full of John the Baptist, forerunners preparing the way for his second coming. And that's how they went out and preached. That's why they went and did missions. That's why Victor Plymeyer, the Pentecostal missionary, went to Tibet. That's why they began to go to China and to India. That's why Lester Summerall went to the Philippines and brought Pentecostalism there. That's why they went down into Central and South America. The great missionaries of Argentina and Brazil. You can learn about them. That's why they took their ships and sailed over to Africa. And then they took planes over there eventually. And they encountered the witch doctors, the spiritist people of those places. They would cast out the demons and the sick would get healed. And it continues even to this day. That's the Pentecostal worldview. The gospel, sanctification, spiritual empowerment, and Jesus' second coming. Can I hear an amen? amen? Now for the next half hour, let's talk about the biggest challenges to this. Because here we are. We believe this. Most of you came onto the scene of a bike that's already broken, and you're figuring it out like, why isn't the church doing what it's supposed to? Maybe not necessarily us, but the greater church of Chicago and of America especially, is, is why does it look so different from the Bible? Why are we not doing these things? Now, I mentioned some names last time who are the biggest names of our movement. Joel Osteen, T.D. Jakes, uh, Carl Lentz, or uh, the Hillsong Church, Brian Houston, or uh, Rich Wilkerson, or these other men that are known in those circles to be the voice to this generation and the most popular, the ones who go on Oprah Winfrey and talk shows, and they're Pentecostal. These ones in particular have failed us. I don't say that personally because I don't love them. I say this to their face. I talked to Rich Wilkerson Jr. and Sr. about my concerns with them and with Joel Osteen. He does not preach like his father preached. And we're not talking about just a difference in fashion. Look at me. We're not talking about a difference in lingo. Look at our lights. We're not talking about a difference in preference of 21st century versus the 50s or whatever. Look at us as a church. We're a prime example that you can be hip. You can participate in, in, in the society you live in and still be Pentecostal with the worldview. So my problems with them, and it's not even money. I'm not even here, and, and a lot of people love to put them down because of their money. I don't even have an issue with them having fountains in their church, whatever, because here's the deal. You don't break the law, 
and the people come and give willingly, well, then y'all can do whatever you want with the money. That's up to you. It's not that they're stealing it. If you go to T.D. Jake's church and you go in there and you see how he lives and see how big the church is, and then you give your money and he hasn't stolen it from you, then he can spend it on whatever he spends it on. You know he's a millionaire. You're not stupid. Are you guys listening to me? And you know what the church looks like, so if you don't like it, you don't have to go there. To me, where it would become a sin to me, where it would become a sin is if they're lying. If they say, we're going to go raise a million dollars for orphans, and he go buys a million-dollar mansion. But if you don't like anywhere where your pastor lives or drives, then go somewhere else, right? Now, then the issue then is of their message and their content. Yes, I do have a message that's heavy-handed into the blessings of this world and doesn't look sacrificially towards the needs of others. Yes, I have a great issue with that, but that to me is not just a dollar amount. Uh, John MacArthur has made a lot of money off the gospel. Uh, James McDonald and Harvest Church here is a $50 million organization, close to $100 million, you know, uh, with all the property that they have. So money, and oh, the Moody organization is, is well over $100 million. Are you listening? Owning all that property. So we, we're, not, we're not, once again, looking at people with problems with the car they drive, the money they have, the buildings. That's not my issue today. I'm going directly towards the content of their message, okay? So when we look at the gospel, we basically have a way that the Pentecostals looked at it. Now, of course, I could show this through the Scripture. I just don't have time. And I, I'm assuming that most people that would listen to me in this setting would believe that I'm actually uh, biblically sound in what I call the gospel sanctification and spiritual empowerment, second coming. Like, like if I have to defend myself on that, I'm, argue, I'm already arguing with somebody that's not a Pentecostal or doesn't respect me, right? Because even if you're not a Pentecostal and you respect me like you know me from the Trinity Evangelical University, my doctoral studies, you're going to be like, Joe's pretty spot on with his worldview in these points, right? So I just don't have time to list out all the scriptures. That's another discussion. And I think last week we got into that a little bit. So what we want to do is just kind of summarize what we're saying, what we have been saying, what we believe the Bible says, and we just want to ask the question, is this what's being said in this generation right now? Let's just ask that question simply, okay? So for the gospel, here's how I believe the Bible describes the gospel, how they preached it in the book of Acts, which means Acts of the Apostles. Okay, here's how I believe they did it. They walked around saying Jesus is Lord, and by doing that, nobody else was, and they put those other ones down. They put down the statues when Paul would preach and that, the, that he got grieved by their idols. How they would call out the pagan deities. You see this when they went to Ephesus. The goddess of Diana is a false god, etc. So Jesus is Lord. Caesar is not. Nobody else is. Jesus is Lord. Then they would say, now you repent and be his disciple. So you repent of your sins. Just like, just like Peter said, repent of your sins. Repent of your sins now. You are by default then a sinner. So we have to talk about sins. So when I hear in an interview Joe Losting say, I don't even mention sin in my sermons, and then a guy like Carl Lentz from Hillsong, New York, say that I follow Joe Osteen's lead and these other wannabes follow his lead, and T.D. Jakes has a, a counseling Dr. Phil-like show and doesn't address the issues through sin, what you now are doing is breaking from the gospel. 
Now, that doesn't mean in everything you do, you have to have the gospel be your language, like you're serving up a hamburger, this is sin if you don't repent, or, you know, if you eat too many of these, you're going to go to hell or something. You don't have to, like, make that kind of connection. But when you are a gospel preacher and you're doing gospel work and you're paid at a church to do gospel work, this should be your gospel message, amen? And then... The call of Jesus, and it was through the disciples, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Is there any doubt that that's found in the book of Acts? As a matter of fact, show me anything other than that. Show me where they're not proclaiming Jesus as Lord, uh, confronting the false gods of their time. Show me where they're not putting repentance of the sin and the mindsets that they have, metanoia, turning from their mindsets and sinful ways in their message. You could just Google the word, repent, search it, and you'll see it's almost in all of their messages. All of their messages. And then where is their call of discipleship? It's in everything they're doing. As a matter of fact, when Acts chapter 2 ends, it then says in verse 42 of Acts chapter 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to discipleship. So those guys on Pentecost who got saved because of the 120s preachings, they now become disciples. Do you see it? It says they, they met together, they broke their bread, they had everything in common, they sold their uh, property, they gave them uh, to the people in need, and then it just continues on. You can read the book of Acts and you can see it's the same mindset. But what is the gospel as it is today? How does it come across when you listen to a lot of these preachers that are from Pentecostal backgrounds? How does it come across? Jesus loves you wants you to be happy, so be a Christian and live a good life. Now I know that seems like I'm creating a straw man because there are so many people that I've talked to about this and they go, Joe, but I know them. Like the guy who's best friends with Joe Lawson that I would talk to, oh, but I know him. This is just what he does for the outreach. This is his public face so he could get more Jews in, more Muslims in, more atheists. But I know him. He does believe in sin. He does, you know, this is just what he does here. But isn't that now double-mindedness? If you have a public message and a secret message, as Carl Lentz said on the Katie Couric show, she asked him, is homosexuality a sin? And he says, I don't discuss that in public. I only have private conversations. Is that even biblical to have that that mindset of how to behave yourself? Should the Christian have private, personal opinions that they don't share when the world asks them? Is that what the Bible says? Keep certain doctrines private and secret and only share them in your small little groups and and secret clubs. No, the Bible says be ready to give an answer. Apologia, the Greek word give an answer, not just an argument or an apology as we think it, but really give an answer for the hope that's within you, Peter said. Give an apologia. Give that defense of why you believe what you believe. Explain to them your belief of Whatever they're asking, they're asking you questions now about sexuality and gender, teach them what the Bible says. God created us male and female. Jesus reiterated this in the New Testament. God only created sex for one man, one woman, and holy matrimony. That's the message of Jesus to sexuality. Any other questions? You know, it's not hard. And the gospel has to come with the repentance of the sinner. This is not a bait and switch. 
See, Pentecostals over time became pragmatics like everybody else in American Christianity. So they found out like, okay, let's say I preach 20 messages or 50 messages this year, right? And I preach on the Trinity, not a big turnout, not a big altar call. I preach on hell, not a big turnout, whatever, you know. I preach on you can make it. God's got your back. Whatever you're going through, your best days are ahead. Don't let anybody tell you you can't not achieve your dreams. And then all of a sudden they find boop, 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 boop. Motivational messages get more crowds. Boop, boop, boop. Motivational messages get more money. Boop, boop, boop. Motivational messages sell more books. Now, I think motivation in the church is great. We should help motivate each other. But we can't call motivation the gospel. For example, if Don Lemon of CNN can say that T.D. Jakes is his hero and yet remain in the homosexual life and still be interviewing him and saying, I just want to tell you how much you impacted me, and yet live a homosexual life, he has either, he's either mentally challenged, and I mean that with all due respect to those who really are, or He doesn't want the gospel. He just wants the benefit of T.D. Jake's motivational speech. Which one do you think it is? Don Lemon is uh, is mentally challenged, or he's just an opportunist using T.D. Jake's to get what he wants? If Jesus helps me achieve my dreams, then I'll take Jesus for a ride. If this idol helps me achieve my dreams, then I'll take this idol. Come on, somebody. The gospel is not just Jesus loves you. I just heard Joseph Prince say everybody knows the message of holiness, but they don't know the love of God. That is a devil's lie. I don't know who he's witnessing to. I don't know who he talks to. I go out in the streets every single week and have done that for over 20 years. Every single person other than the atheist knows that if there is a God, that God loves them. What they don't know is the holiness required of them to get to heaven without a Savior, perfection. And therefore, they don't understand that the cross took their literal sins, and the only way of their redemption is to admit those literal sins and humble themselves to receive a Savior. And that's why I love what Paul Washer said, we're not gospel-hardened in America, we're gospel-illiterate. Many people in the church don't even understand the gospel. And that's why we talked about last week that the Reformed worldview, which is a whole different worldview we don't have to get into today, but it's Christian, and so we believe that you can go to heaven holding a Reformed worldview. But this is why they're, they're, they're taking so many from our Pentecostal churches is because it's so easy for them to show the Pentecostal how corrupt this worldview is when those are our main representatives. Like you have a choice as a hungry spiritual Christian to listen to Carl Lentz or Francis Chan. Who are you picking? I mean, if you just started reading your Bible and you watch two YouTube videos, you're going to start to get the mindset that Elevation Church is giving me cotton candy with Steve Furtick's encouragement message every single week. But now Francis Chan, Paul Washer, John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, I mean, they're dropping it like it's hot. It lines up with the Bible. They're going verse by verse by verse by verse by verse. 
Pentecostals used to do that. Do you know that Pentecostals were some of the first to come out with the in-depth commentaries? That, that our commentaries were known to be very in-depth. Though sometimes they may be different in doctrine and they may not respect all of our doctrine. But just the one, for example, that comes to my mind, what's that famous one? The guy who memorized the whole Bible. No, 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 before him. Look up Pentecostal commentary of the early 1900s. This was one of the most famous commentaries of his day. The man memorized the entire Bible. Memorized the entire Bible. We were known for our theology. Even if you disagreed with the Jimmy Swaggart of the 80s, even if you disagreed with him, Jimmy Swaggart had commentary after commentary after commentary. And he himself, I don't even think, had a Bible college degree. He gave his life to study. This is what we were known for as well as our charismaticism, our preaching. And the reason why we don't just tell it and we yell it is because we're empowered with passion from the Holy Spirit. It's not just a cultural thing. Yeah, we can learn to entertain and do those things. And sadly, our screaming and hollering has been known more for entertaining. But when you get real Pentecostal preaching, you meet passionate people. You meet people that are on fire. That's the terminology. We're on fire. Where does that come from? The Acts chapter 2 baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now we get into uh, sanctification. Sanctification talks about being holy as God is holy. And I purposely left out the different views that we had, initial sanctification, um, Second baptism of sanctification or ongoing sanctification. But I'll tell you this, we all believed in it. We all believed there was a radical transformation. I'll take any day someone who believes on ongoing sanctification over a lukewarm Christian who listens to like a Joseph Prince and believes he has it now but has no change in his life. Because at least the ongoing believer takes radically and seriously the change of behavior. If I'm saved, what am I saved from? Leonard Ravenhill always used to say, the famous Pentecostal preacher of the, the 30s and 40s and 50s and up to the 80s till he passed. What am I saved from? I'm saved from my sin. I'm saved from indwelling sin. I'm saved from, saved from the presence and the power of sin. So we say, be holy. This is our message. Be holy. Because God is holy. Don't love the world. That was a famous tagline of Pentecostal preaching. And yes, sometimes it could be legalistic. But don't love the world. But hate sin and love righteousness. Once again, I believe in Christian liberty. And I think I could have some great discussions with these folks. But I'll tell you what. I would rather deal with a person that believes we should always wear a suit and women not cut their hair than someone who's living in continual sin and says they're a Christian. I know that legalism can also uh, rotten the fruit, just like, um, you know, false uh, liberty or what we call licentiousness. Both of those ditches can spoil the fruit. It's liberty that we want. We don't want legalism and we don't want licentiousness. We want liberty in the spirit, spirit spirit-led lives. So we believe God is holy, I'm holy. He is perfect, I am perfect. In Jesus, those things are real. I don't want the world. I want Jesus. I hate sin and I love righteousness. But what do they say instead? Be a better person. Set moral goals and achieve them by trial and error. So there's not an immediate desire for change. 
It's keep coming to church and God will keep whittling on you. You're God's project in the, in the garage and he's making a rocking chair, you know. You're, you're God's little pet project that he's whittling on and whittling on and whittling on and whittling on. But hold on, I thought the Bible says I was already sanctified. I was already justified. I was already washed in 2 Corinthians. He who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has what? Come. I thought that's what the Bible says. I thought the Bible says that those who are born again don't go down that path anymore. They can't sin because God lives in them or continue in that sin. And so we see that the be a better person is the Pentecostal message in most churches today. Let's talk about your marriage, help you to be a better person, some trial and error. Nobody's perfect, but you might get there if you keep working at it. You keep working at your marriage, God's going to bless you. You keep working at your temper, and God's going to make you a nice person just like me. You'll smile. Everybody will like you. You will win friends and influence people. If you just get up from here with a great attitude, you say you can do it, God will help you to do it. That's the message now of the Pentecostal. And you put it in tight jeans and a medium shirt with elf pointy shoes, it's no different. It's no different. Your tight pants don't change it. It doesn't change it. It's still weak and powerless. It's just moralistic deism. It's God is somewhere way out over there, and you're trying to better yourself here, and every now and then you might collide with him, but there's no real empowerment of change. It's not, I came in here a smoker, and I am leaving not smoking ever again. It's not, I came in here ready to divorce my wife. Now we'll be married for the next 50 years. My friends, I know so many testimonies like that. You can't tell me God doesn't do it because I've seen it. I've seen people get off drugs, not 12 steps, one step. I've seen people set free. Anyone who continues in their sin hasn't been set free, the Bible says, or they were free and went back to their sin, like a dog returning to their vomit and a pig going back to their mud. It's not that God didn't work. You didn't do what God asked you to do. He said, these are the signs of my disciples. He says, anyone who knows my truth and holds to it is my disciple indeed, and they shall know the truth, and the truth shall make them or set them free. Spiritual empowerment. We believed in the second baptism of the Holy Spirit. So that means that Christians are now empowered by the spiritual world via the Holy Spirit to be a terror to the devil, to actually cast out demons. You think demons left after Jesus went to heaven? Said, we're done, we're going. No, look at the book of Acts. They're casting out demons all over the place. Look at us in India. Look at us in Africa. Demons being cast out. Look at us here in inner cities or in troubled areas. Demons still being cast out. So what do we say? Receive that baptism of the Holy Spirit. Join us. It's not that we're saying we're better than you. We're just better off because we're obedient to Christ. But you can join us. That's what Peter said. This is for you. Isn't that what he told him in Acts 2.38? He said, this is for you and for as many who are far off. For all the Lord our God will call. For all the Lord our God will call. And then you'll speak in tongues. How do you know that you've received that power? You'll speak in tongues. And then the other nine gifts, 
those weird chapters of the Bible in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, those other gifts actually start to happen. They actually start to take place. Dakes study Bible, sir. Dakes. Yep, Dakes. Look up him and get it on Wikipedia and find out a little bio, and I'll read it for you before you go, or just hand it off to him. You do that for me, please, sir. Instead of people now being baptized in the Holy Spirit, now we don't want to freak people out anymore. And so if I was to rename this message instead of reclaiming the Pentecostal worldview, what we could call it is Pentecostalism, the forgotten worldview of America. They forgot about us. They used to even tease us. They don't even tease us anymore because there's not much to even tease. They'll make fun of these fake televangelists, but not the real deal. The real exorcisms, the real healings that are still happening today. You look at Jesus culture and Bethel and IHOP. They're non-existent to the secular world. Nobody cares about them. One thing may get 20,000 people, and that's the global event that they have. You're talking Justin Bieber gets 20,000 in 39 cities just on one tour, not to mention what Miley Cyrus gets on her tour that same year, what Kanye West gets on his tour. You're talking millions are turning out for their conferences. We'll get 20,000. The local news doesn't even care. They don't care. They don't care about Bethel. You think Reading cares about Bethel? I went to Brownsville Revival. They had over a million people join for five years. It burned out in the media in just a few weeks, months. Every now and then they would do a story. It was so unimportant to them because it's not big enough to get their attention. But we need to grow like wildfire again. We need to spread through evangelism onto the streets We need to build our churches with a worldview that confronts them where they have to pay attention and put us on their news shows and ask us what is happening because that's what happened in their world is it was revival or riot. But there was no middle ground with the Pentecostals. And so I thank God for Bethel. I thank God for IHOP. But that is a drop in the bucket. You're talking maybe a few hundred thousand. My friends, it's time for us to raise up to millions in this country millions in this country. It's time for us to fill the stadiums over and over and over and over and over again. Sadly, I was talking to one of Reinhard Bonnke's people during the crusades they were doing around here, and I just wasn't feeling it. And he said, oh, we're, we're about ready to bust out of these stadiums and start going to the tents. We can't fit them all in. See, we can't lie and fake it. See, too many Pentecostals now want to fake the tent revival movement of the 50s and 60s. They want to fake the televangelism of what God actually did when television became popular in every home and preachers were there preaching. Now we have cheap imitations. I don't want a cheap imitation. I don't want no $5 holy rag on TV for shipping and handling. Are you listening? I don't want no uh, whatever the gospel industry is offering right now with a dude singing on the stage, getting off with three side chicks and maybe a side dude. Hello? I just watched one of these depositions of a so-called apostle on Facebook who was there because he broke the laws of the IRS, and it's a shame to the church. Excuse me, sir, you, you spent 60000 at Gucci for clothes and didn't claim it as a personal expense, but a ministry expense. Oh, yeah, I sweat through my suits, and I need a lot of suits. Do you need to get them at Gucci? 
He was counting his Gucci suits as work uniforms. I want to throw this mic just thinking about the stupidity of that. Okay, you got a work uniform. Company pays for it. But you're a minister. And it's Gucci. Are you that hell-bent? Are you that much a lover of money? Because there will be no mercy on Judgment Day for that person. Look what happened to Judas, the lover of money. He hung himself and busted hell wide open. Are you listening? The Bible says that those who love money will be pained with many pains. They will cry out for mercy, and on Judgment Day, they will not be heard because of their greed of this earth and the oppression of the people. Just read Isaiah 56 through 59, and and, and Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Read the whole prophets and how they were rebuking the false priests. Jeremiah 23. Here's the spiritual empowerment of today. You hear it all the time. Look at your Facebook feed. Attend conferences. Read our books. Sing our songs and be influential for positive change. In other words, achieve your dreams. We'll help make your dreams come true. Come to our conference, spend $25, spend the money on our books, sing our songs that are copywritten. We can't even put up songs in this church without, without uh, um, conforming to their copyright laws. What is wrong with us? How much have we come away from the empowerment of Christ? And then number four, Jesus' second coming. You see, if the gospel is true, and I've been changed, and now I'm empowered, and I'm seeing heaven come to earth, well, then what else is true? As surely as he came the first time, what's happening? Talk to me. What's happening? What's going to happen? He's coming the second time. And so that's my focus. My focus is, do I want this to come out on Judgment Day? Because he's coming. Is this how I want to raise my family? Because he's coming. Is this how I want to have my time be shown on Judgment Day? Because he's coming. The Bible says make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. You think about Jesus' second coming. You live with the worldview. This life is temporary. Leonard Ravenhill put on top of his gravestone, but he also had it in his office before he passed. And it was, is, are the things worth you living for, worth Christ dying for? That was one of his main messages. You sleep for eight hours, you work for eight hours. What are you doing with the other eight hours of your life? Have you spent it on the idolatry, idolatry of sports and entertainment and meeting your needs and travel and vacations and this and that? Where are your other eight hours? God is coming. Lost souls are going to hell. Let's preach and pray and plug away. It's not the message of just discover your purpose. Live your life now, your best life now, and believe you can make this world a better place. Now, ultimately, you can see truths in these perversions of the truth. There's, there's some truth in here. We'll have purpose. We'll have a best life. But my best life is not a carnally-minded life. My best life is a Christian hedonistic life. The Christian pleasures are the greatest pleasures. Read about John Piper and Christian hedonism. It means to find your greatest pleasures in God. My friends... 
It's not like these guys are so cool having so much fun. Their fun cannot compare to what I'm having now. The Pentecostal gets the most pleasure out of life. Pleasure is a biblical motivation. It's a biblical motivation. God designed it that way. But he said, in my presence is the fullness of joy. So you want the fullness of joy? Get in God's presence. You see how he's drawing you in by your pleasure? In my presence, he says, the fullness of joy. In what? At my right hand, or what? What? Come on. Know the scriptures. What? Yeah, pleasures forevermore. They would say at the end of their letters, Maranatha. They would say as they would move away from each other, as they would go, you know, say goodbye, Maranatha, God bless you. And what does that mean? Come so now, Lord Jesus. Come now. Come now. James taught us to even say when we make our plans, we should say, the Lord wills. If the Lord wills, we'll do such and such. Because like Jesus said, the rich man put all of his food and all of his uh, crops and all of his money in a bank, and he thought he was going to spend it on this, this, and this. And Jesus said, look at me, look what Jesus said. Jesus said in the New Testament, you fool, you will die tonight and someone else will spend your money and you'll go to hell. He said, don't live like that. Don't live for that. It's good to have it. Yes, read all of the Psalms and Proverbs. God's blessings are bountiful. Deuteronomy 28 talks about the blessings of God. But don't supplant them for the blesser. It's the face, then the hand. I don't seek the hand first. I seek the face. And then the blessings that he gives me. Amen? Let's reclaim this Pentecostal worldview. Next week, Lord willing, we'll talk about the three sins of Christian millennials. It's going to be an awesome message. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you, Lord, in all humility that you gave me the chance to preach this. You burned it in my heart. I pray that your word, God, will come alive in us now and that this generation will reclaim the gospel, sanctification, spiritual empowerment, and your second coming. And that, Lord, we will give grace to our brothers and sisters to help come alongside of them, to encourage them to live out this worldview just like they did on Pentecost, to invite them with their sons and their daughters and their, their offspring for generations to come, that as many as you call, God will be filled with the Spirit and do these wonderful things. Because we look forward to you coming in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Shout Maranatha and give the Lord a hand clap. Come on, come Lord Jesus now. Maranatha.